Welcome again to our podcast inside SAP S4HANA. As you know, there's no customer success without product success and product success. And today, as promised, we have again Jocelyn Dart on the line, who will tell us a lot of things about how you can make your Fury project a success. We will talk again about Fury adoption strategies. And in the second podcast on this topic, we will really focus with Jocelyn on what makes for success or failure. So, Jocelyn, welcome back. Can you please start with a short summary of what we covered in the first episode on Fury Adoption Strategies, please? Sure. Uh, thanks, Yannick. So what we started with in the first episode was really talking about some of the different uh, Fury adoption strategies that we're seeing customers use. And there is a wide range here. Um, everything from very simple strategies to just sort of open it up a little bit. And that might be something like just using the Fury Launchpad as a single entry point or, say, using Business Client with the Launchpad connection. So you're at least bringing people in as to the, again, into the Fury Launchpad as their entry point. But then when they click on something, it goes back to their GUI for Windows if it's a classic UI. And they get that, start to get that mix of Fury and GUI, and you start to entice them over to the new user experience. Um, for more advanced customers, what they tend to do is go for targeted uh, showcase roles or processes so that you really focus on something that's going to convince the next stages and show deliberate new business value. Uh, something that you've perhaps researched and that you know is going to have a big impact. And, of course, then you have Greenfield customers and digital transformation customers who really just want to do as much Fury as they can, and they tend to have a Fury-first strategy. Um, that takes a little bit more effort, but, of course, you're going to get more value with that. Okay. What was actually your first contact with business users of uh, SAP S4HANA and how did that really change your thinking or the way you just approached the UX project? Yes, that was interesting. It was a tiny little public sector agency and they were actually uh, merging from a, uh, into one from a group of other small agencies. So most of the people there didn't really have an SAP background, and it was all, everything was all new to them, including their own processes. So we were trying to set some expectations and show them that Fury Launchpad experience and all the tiles and how they'd move around. And pretty much the first thing they said to me was, okay, this all looks pretty easy, but you've got all these tiles there with all these names of different tasks I can do. But here's my problem. Um, someone's just given me a reference number or in an email or they've rung up over the phone and I don't really know what this is yet. I don't know if it's a, a purchase order number or a delivery slip or an invoice number. I don't know if it's our number or their number or the service provider's number. <laughs> the first thing I've got to do is find out what this thing is before I even know which tile to click on and which task to do. And that was the sort of the big aha moment of me of, oh, this is where Fiori search really makes a big impact and a big difference over how we did things in the old ERP days. 
the business weekdays. And it's also uh, makes it clear how even simple Fury Launchpad features, those central features, bring some real value to end users. So to me, that was my first awakening of, okay, we don't really need to go to the extremes of doing everything Fury here to get good value. You can just do some simple things. And if you do them well, then they actually bring um, good value to people that encourages them into the new world. You've said in the previous podcast that um, the, the adoption, the ways, the technologies, the methods are completely different in the projects. So what are some of the misconceptions that really get in the way of your adoption? Yes, um, it's interesting and you do see patterns and it's almost always the extreme, always and never ends of the spectrum. Um, so the, the first misconception is really missing the importance of Fiori to uh, approving that business value of Esfahana. So I had this with uh, the very first company, uh, the project that I shepherded as part of the rig when I joined the rig, and it was in a cement company in India. And at the start of their project, they said, yes, of course, we're going to do Fiori. We've chosen a nice um, small list of apps that we're going to do. That's part of our plan. And then they started to get into conversion. And for them and their partner, it was the first time they'd been through this and they hit a couple of hurdles, nothing dramatic, but, you know, it all takes effort and time. And it was, uh, we'll get to the Fury later, we'll get to the Fury later, we'll get to the Fury later. So, um, of course, at the end of the project, what happened was they'd done things on budget, on time, they'd had a nice short few months schedule, um, and they said to us, you know, we're all here patting ourselves on the back because it's been a successful project and we think we've done really well. But the business has come to us and said, so where's the business, the, the new business value of Esfahana? And we sort of said, um, do you remember that conversation we had about the importance of doing Fiori? So um, not really realising that Fiori is your way to show business value is the first one. And the second one is the other extreme, which is thinking everything has to be Fiori only. That's not the way Esfahana is actually built. It's intended to be, um, you can certainly go for Fiori first, but taking each GUI transaction, uh, looking again at each role and each process and task, rebuilding how those roles, how those processes, how those tasks are going to work in a new intelligent enterprise, that's quite a, a shift. Um, so, uh, you know, SAP's got a lot of experience in doing processes and tasks and all of that sort of thing. So that's a careful journey for us as well as for you. Uh, so we, and it's a pragmatic journey. So we bring new Fiori apps, but often, um, we start by mixing in some new Fiori apps with some of the classic UIs. And as we go over time and up to new versions, you get more and more coverage. So if you say everything has to be Fiori only, you're either going to end up with, okay, I can only do part of my process, depending on the role, of course, or, um, you might even have some roles where, well, okay, there's no Fiori apps there yet. So then it, then it becomes uh, very confusing for people. We've talked a lot about value last podcast and this one already. So what, what is one of the most important things to do to ensure success in adopting Fiori and really get the value out of it? Because it's a big, it's a big effort. It's a big time investment too. Yes, it is. Uh, and I mean, it's the same um, as anything that you're going to get value out of, out of, and that's to have a plan. 
Um, and the failure to plan is one of the uh, the way, quick ways of, to have failure in its success. Um, you know, the old saying of um, failure to plan is uh, planning to fail. Uh, so by a plan in this area, what we generally mean is a user experience strategy. You really need to come and think about how all of the user experience is going to come together and you need to sort of use three different lenses on that. Um, the first one is people because at the end of the day, this is going to land in front of a business user and they're going to have to use it. So it has to be usable for them. It has to come together in a way that makes sense to him. And the second thing is, of course, the things that we are all used to dealing with on SAP projects, and that's from the process and the technology point of view. Generally what happens is people uh, uh, and projects are okay with the process and the technology aspects because everybody who's been on an SAP project has been doing that for decades. But that people aspect is often underplanned or forgotten or done a bit of a rush at the end, and that's where things can sort of go awry. So what kind of activities needs to be included then? Okay, so um, what I tell people is think of UX as more of a work stream rather than a technical checklist. So it's often a team, there's an engagement across teams, and you need focus on what you're actually going to deliver. Um, some of the main things that you really need to make sure are included in the UX work stream are all the shared central features. So that's things like search, notifications, user defaults, my inbox, some of the workflow capabilities, um, some of the analytics configuration, those sorts of things. Um, I've seen projects where uh, people just expect the functional consultants will set all of that up and what ha happens is it doesn't happen. Okay, so uh, I've even seen projects where nearly every functional stream said, yeah, we're using my inbox and we're using my inbox and we're using my inbox too. And then you said, so who's configuring my inbox? And there's silence. So, um, you know, everybody just assumes someone else is going to do it. Um, so you need to make sure those central features are, are set up. That also comes to the Fiori Launchpad features um, themselves. There's a lot of optional features. There's a lot of things uh, that can improve the user experience and improve the the, the performance and behaviour depending on how much you're bringing to people on their launch pad. So someone needs to work through all of that and decide what's the right mix for the way we're going to run um, our launch pad for our people. And even mm -hmm. things like, you know, do we use business client or are we going direct to a browser? Are we doing this on different devices or just on desktops? What's the, what's the roadmap there? Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I get that. So search, notification, inbox, that sounds actually pretty obvious, right? Because these are the features, the functions that you want to, to deploy for, for, for the end user. So it's not a bit obvious, right? But um, UX is a lot about, you know, people themselves, their psychology eventually. So what is then less obvious? What makes that more complex than just activating, activating features and function? Okay, well, one of the things to really think about is how you're going to engage your users. Um, and 
what I've come to to realise on most projects is good organisational change management teams are absolute gold uh, in a project mix and you want them in as early as possible. Um, you really need to get to know your target groups um, from a couple of reasons. One, uh, you need to know your, the expectations of the business users. They're going to come with expectations whether you know them or not. So it's always better to know them so you can meet expectations or at least manage them. The second thing is it's important to show that it's a consultative process, that you're engaging with the users and getting their opinion and input on what's happening. Now, that's really valuable for a couple of reasons. No matter how many process experts you have on the project, you walk a, an end user into a room, and I've done this, and you put up on the, and we just use post-it notes, a post-it note for each tile they were going to have on their launch pad, and you get them to look at that. And within a few minutes, they'll be saying, oh, but where's this? And you suddenly realise, oops, we missed a piece of the process or we missed something that we actually didn't think they did and yet in practice they do. So it's really important to get that pub test on what you're doing and the, have those engagement and feedback loops with people who really do that role in real life. You don't need a lot of those involved, but um, the more of those involved, the more likely you're going to have success. And, of course, what you're really aiming to do with those people is not just use them as a sounding board but grow them into change evangelists. So instead of it being the IT team or the project team um, dumping this thing on the rest of the organisation, you've got them alongside you saying, this is good, this is what it's going to do for us and actually helping to convince the rest of the organisation of why this is better and why we've made these choices. Always much more effective. Um, perhaps the, the most important thing uh, out of all of that is to think about the day one experience for your user and that's really about what it's going to look like for them when it all lands on their desk or their phone or their tablet. Um, and particularly, you know, on day one, is that going to be nicely organised so that they come into work at 8.30 and they can get on with their regular tasks or at 8.31 or is it going to be they're going to be spending the first two, three hours just trying to sort through the mess and get to what they need? And that's where it comes to perhaps the most overlooked UX activity, and that's homepage design. Homepage design, the first time I hear that, <laughs> to be honest with you. What do you mean exactly with homepage design? Okay. So uh, the way I explain it is, look, um, you're going to have a lot of apps and a lot of tiles, a lot of links that you can potentially put on that, that uh, launch pad. But you don't want to put everything out there. I mean, if you break someone's day up into all the tiny little things they do across the day, across the week, across the month, across the year, that's a lot of stuff. And some of the projects I've seen throw it all at the at the homepage and what you end up is some poor user and some of the worst cases I've heard of is one user who had 500 tiles on their homepage and another who had 300 tiles and reckoned their productivity gone down to 40% because they, could, they couldn't find what they were looking for. Um, one of my uh, 
customers Orica is picking a ticket on on um, you know the the challenge of scaling UX and they call this the bathroom effect there's tiles everywhere so you really need to think about how it's organized these days the way I explain that is you want to focus the workspace a little bit like your dining table so when you sit down to eat a meal do you put every cup every saucer plate fork knife spoon chopstick bowl glass out of your cupboard and on the table and then try to eat? No, of course you don't. It would be too crazy and there'd be nowhere left to eat. You keep the stuff that you need, the bread and butter stuff that you use every day. That's what goes on the table. The rest is in the cupboards and shelves. Uh, and for us with Fiori, the cupboards and shelves is your app finder. Um, and you can get to all of that stuff with the Fiori search, and the home navigation button. But um, you, you just want the, the sort of basics day-to-day on the homepage in the table in front of you, that helps you think clearly. You can get on with your day and you know, look, if I need something special, I can always grab that out easily. So it's a, then it's a focused workspace. As a French foodie, I, of course, love the analogy that you just brought. Um, and now I got the point with the homepage design, but in case you don't have the apps that uh, you need on the homepage, well, how do you find them? I mean, this is a challenge then for end user if we ask them to focus on the homepage design and all of a sudden they need you know, a few apps that are not there. You know, they might be lost in translation. Yeah. Um, so this is that whole uh, reinforcing as part of your change management, as part of your introduction, that whole insight to action approach. Because the way business roles are actually delivered to you and the way um, that we encourage you to set them up is um, that process of, okay, I'm coming in to do a task. I have a starting point. And maybe that's something like an overview page where I've got a cockpit of what's happening in my area. And then that's bringing me insights of what's going on. And I see something that's interesting or something that needs attention. And I drill down on that. And that takes me to the next app. And then I think, okay, I need to see some more details of that. And I drill down on that and I go to the next app. And at the point that I feel that I've got enough information, I should either be act, able to act right there or be able to, again, navigate straight to the to the app where I make that action. So in all of that, when you do that in practice, that's a very, very natural flow. I'm literally following the way that I'm thinking. But what that means is I only need the very first starting point on the homepage. The rest of the stuff I'm getting to through natural navigation, through links, through clicking down on interesting charts, et cetera. Um, the other thing, that works while you're in a particular context of a task or a process. Now, when you get interrupted or you need to change context, that's where you start to say, okay, well, I need to go and use something else. So then you can search for apps by using the Fiori search. So you can search for apps by name or by keyword. Uh, you can even search, for instance, um, if you're used to knowing your old GUI transaction codes, you can often search by the GUI transaction code name. Um, you can go to the app finder or you can, uh, on your home uh, navigation button, you can actually use that as a quick way to quickly go to other apps that you've got access to. Um, so there's okay. plenty of options to get there. Some some really good tips here, Jocelyn. Do you see those as really specific to an S4HANA project? Or would you say the relevance to customers who are you know starting with Fiori before S4HANA? 
Ah, yes, that's that's a good one. Uh, yes, this is actually all part of the way that Fiori works. It's just that in S4 HANA, we're taking it to uh, big scale. So even if you're doing Fiori before S4 HANA, you can take advantage of some of these approaches. Um, so uh, definitely I have a lot of customers that have done Fiori before S4 HANA, and mostly these people were doing less than 50 apps in total, whereas these days with my S4 HANA customers, I'll have most customers are, are doing anywhere between 20, um, and at the extreme end I've got something like maybe 450 Fiori apps, and that's not including classic UIs like GUI transactions. So, for instance, um, one of my customers, they've got, say, 460 apps, I think it was, out of 1,450 total apps plus classic UIs. So if you're doing it before S4HANA, you're doing the same sort of thing, but you often have a bit more time and flexibility because you're not dealing with quite that amount of scale. So uh, definitely, if you're going with Fury before S4HANA, take advantage of learning some of these techniques and putting them in practice, and that will help you later on. And this brings us to the next podcast, Jocelyn, how to handle Fiori now when S4HANA is later, which is actually relevant for quite some customers. Jocelyn, thanks for being with me today. Thanks for sharing again your personal implementation experience when it comes to Fiori adoption strategies and the clear focus on success and failure. If you like this episode, please share it. If you'd like us to cover any additional specific topic in, in that area, Again, drop us an email via insidess 4 at acp.com. So thanks again. Stay tuned for our next episode and we will be inside ACP S4HANA. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.